0: Welcome to Making Action Happen with Sarah Blackhurst and Brian McCain. We're here to discuss public policy issues in our home state of Colorado and beyond. Making Action Happen is presented by Action 22. Find out about our organization at action22.org. Now, here are your hosts, Sarah Blackhurst and Brian McCain hi everybody welcome
1: back to making action happen I'm Sarah blackhurst and
0: I'm Brian McCain
1: and we are here to with you with the incomparable Jeff Chaucer, and we'll talk with him in just a few minutes but before we get too far into our discussion with him we want to give a shout out to butch Chavez's family butch has been um, a wonderful part of our community for a really long time and he passed on Friday but he's been a he's been an icon in the veteran community uh here in Pueblo for a really long time
0: yeah Yeah. I've worked with him on various projects. We'd always get a wild idea every few years to build a memorial or have a a ceremony. Um, I've been working with him for almost 15 years now on stuff and it would sad to see him go.
2: Yeah. I would, I would echo those comments. He's uh, he was great in the military affairs committee. I know he did a lot with um, the Veterans Administration. I went up to Denver with him a couple of times for some of the substance abuse graduations that they had up there, and he he really worked closely with the PTSD guys.
1: He yeah. was so sweet. He would do um, as much as he could manage uh, when I was over doing the working on the stuff with hospice. So he'd come over and really um, visit with families and sort of take them under their wing. And he did a whole bunch. But he was always so sweet and so lovely to me every time I saw him. And would call me. He. And and do the whole thing. So um, that's how I know if somebody's actually from Pueblo if they they call me Hita. So um, he was always like that with me, and and so we're certainly going to miss um, Butch. And um, all of our love and affection goes out to. To Butch and his family, um, right now is where we know that that's that's going to hurt for a little bit. So Jeff, before we move
2: on, I just I did want to say something about uh, his wife Pat. Right. Well, I know who had gone through that, and and you folks know Pat as well mm-hmm. from different organizations. So again, our uh, thoughts and prayers with you, Pat.
1: Yes, for sure, for sure. So we've got Jeff Chostner with us today. Um I first remember you when I was running the chamber of commerce and you were doing, um, we were, I was asked to MC the Memorial day. Do you remember this? This was a long, it feels like two lifetimes ago. Um, but you were gonna, you're the keynote speaker for the Memorial day, um, remembrance at the uh, cemetery up in Colorado city. I literally had never been to that cemetery before, even though I was the director of the chamber of commerce. <laughs> so, um, somebody said, Oh, Jeff Chostner. And I didn't know who you were at the time. I knew that you were a, a local political leader, but I didn't know who you were. So you sent me your bio and I actually carried that around in my files for ever for the bio that you sent me. That's probably a little bit outdated since then. And you came and you gave the most beautiful speech. It made me emotional. I asked you for a copy of it later and you sent the cop. You were very sweet to send the copy and I carried it around and read it for a long time after that. But ever since then, you've, been sort of a friend and a mentor and a colleague of mine, but that was the first time. Do you remember this? This, I think that was the first time we ever met.
2: I do. I was, I was still a County commissioner at the time and I was asked to do the Memorial day service in Colorado city at the uh, cemetery there, as you mentioned, and I've done it a couple of times, but that's where I first met you there. And I really, um, enjoy that setting because you're there with the mountains and you've still got the prairie and it's it's very um, close to the community yep uh, and so it was uh, it was something that i really enjoyed doing so but yes i remember you from then and then we have carried on in different capacities since then yeah. all with a view towards trying to do the best thing for the uh, community as, as corny as that mm-hmm. sounds that's why i'm in uh, public service that's why i know what what you guys are doing and Um, So we carry on after all these years to make sure we can do what we can while we can for Pueblo.
1: And you um, babysat Brian when he was little?
0: No. uh, No, 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 no. At least I don't think so. No, No, I don't remember that either. No, uh, uh, I've, I've known Jeff for ever working again, public service, even if it's political, you know, I, I, I get it. And he gets it. We're just trying to do what's best for the community. And, and he's a veteran, I'm a veteran. So we're both kind of tied into the, the veterans groups here. And we've been, I've been going to those for 15 years now, yep. I think. So I think that's how you initially started. And I, I think I met you
2: first through Congressman Tipton's office. Yep, I think yep. that was it. You were, you were his yep. local liaison here. Yeah, And I think the fact that we're both air force veterans, I think that yep. helped a little bit. and. uh Again, we are of a temperament that we're not really into partisan politics so much as getting things done. Yep. And I found that, quite frankly, I found that in Congressman Tipton and I found it in Bryan. Um And so we were able to work any number of issues together. On a personal note, I also uh, knew very well his... Uh, grandmother-in-law
0: is that the best yeah 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 grandmother-in-law uh uh, my wife jill's grandmother nanny who who also passed away recently yeah so So, uh
2: Paul and my wife were close with her yeah. and R.J. Schultz. And she was also English. And mm-hmm. having uh, lived in England for five years, we had a lot of uh, chats about uh, old Blighty. Mm-hmm. You know? so
0: mm-hmm. was, yeah, she was, was a wonderful woman. She was stubbornly English. <laughs> yeah, till that's the a, end. that's, <laughs> a, that's, uh, a, good, that's I, a good way to put it. You know, on the 4th of July, when everybody had their American flags out, she would put up her Union, <laughs> Union Jack and, and give everybody <laughs> dirty looks and <laughs> complain about fireworks. <laughs> so. You still belong to us. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> the so. Empire. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yep. But, but, but since then, you know, just, uh, your political career here in Pueblo has been, um, the second to none. And currently you're serving your second term as the DA. Actually, I'm
2: in my third term. Third
0: term. Third I'm term. I'm just finishing up my first year going into my second year of my third term. Okay. And one thing right now that we're seeing from, these blasts of political ads because tis the season. Um, you know, you have one side of the aisle saying it's a crime tsunami and the other one saying it's better than it's ever been. But I believe in facts. And as the district attorney here in Pueblo, you know, the facts yeah. about where this is going and what's going on.
2: Well, I think, you know, you, you mentioned that and you, you um, create some thoughts in my mind about it. It's really kind of true. Both sides of that. Mm-hmm. If you look historically, uh, crime in the United States and crime in Colorado, and crime in Pueblo, is less today than it was in 1970. Mm-hmm. So, but you're going back 50 plus years to get to that to that level of crime, and of course the 70s were rife with crime into the 80s, and the legislatures uh, and the Congress responded to that over the years. And took away some of the discretion of judges, mm-hmm. put in determinate sen- sentencing, uh, harsher sentences, that sort of thing. So from about the early '80s on, crime has actually gone down in America from what it was in the '60s and '70s. So that part of it is true. Mm-hmm. But we live in the here and now. Yes, <laughs> right? And uh, it's, it's interesting to talk about what happened in 1970, but I'm more concerned about what happened in 2010, 2015, mm-hmm. and 2022. Though you know, you have to live in the environment we're in now, and the thing that can concerns me is that in recent years, crime has started to go back up nationwide in Colorado and in Pueblo. I had worked very aggressively with the chief of police and the sheriff to try and bring crime down. And and basically with just old uh, gumshoe, uh, hard prosecutor kind of approach to things. And um, in 2018, crime was down 10 percent. In 2019, crime was down 17 percent. So, you know, it was actually working. Yeah. Then COVID came along. And then we've had two sessions of the Colorado legislature that I think have not been helpful to crime. And there's been any number of bills that have either uh, lessened bail requirements, um, people with guns are allowed to be back out on the street. Um, that, as you may know, uh, as of today, March 1st. Mm-hmm. Um, One of the bills, Senate Bill 271 here in Colorado went into effect, which reclassifies many felonies as misdemeanors and many misdemeanors as petty offenses. Mm -hmm. So you can't get your bang for your buck when you go into court on these people and, and, and try and take them off the street. So that's very worrisome to all of us. I think the trend in the last couple of years, while I think some reform is certainly In order, and there's been experimental things that the law enforcement community uh, in my office as well have has done here. Um, With that said, uh, we're really concerned that the penalties and the sanctions are not stiff enough to to deter crime. When I talk about the experimental things, there's a number of programs that we put into effect. Um, my predecessor, Bill Tebow, and I give him credit for it, put into effect the Behavioral Health Treatment Court for people who have mental illnesses because of my military background we've alluded to. Uh, when I first came into office, we used that as a model to create the Veterans Treatment Court. Mm-hmm. I represent our office uh, all day Thursday in both of those courts. I've gone okay. back into court because they're they're so important to me that, that we do that. And we've had good success with those, I might say, Um, but they are very resource intensive because it takes uh, an attorney or two from my office, somebody from the public defender's office, somebody out of uh, social services, out of probation, a judge dedicated to it um, so that uh, you may get good results. But uh, I'm in court on a Thursday and we may handle um, 40 cases in both courts. Whereas in a normal docket, and a normal attorney will be handling 150 to 200 cases. So you're saying you get good results with a small group, but the amount of energy, time, and money to get that result is exorbitant, and it's hard for any one of our agencies to maintain that on a full-time basis.
1: So as far as that goes, I know, because you you and I have talked about it before, and I'm going to be facetious and say you've got people lined up around the block for these jobs. (laughs)
2: You mean to be one of my attorneys? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Well, that used to be the case. Right. Uh, Not so much. And I I kind of alluded to that uh, a little bit ago. In the last couple of years, I think there's been a trend against law enforcement agencies Mm -hmm. in general. Mm -hmm. So you see the recruitment down at um, the sheriff's office, at the police department, at the state patrol, at the state hospital, the uniform services out there. and by extension with the district attorney's office, (coughs) excuse me. So I'm down right now about eight attorneys, which is about 40% of my attorney staff. So the cases have remained the same. The the seriousness, the gravity of the cases have gone up, and yet I have fewer people to actually handle those cases. We carry on. I mean, we do what we can, but uh, I worry, just as a manager of the office, I worry about attorney burnout. Sure. I mean, how long can you have people at this excessive level of work before they just say, I've had enough of it? And this is, and and, I'm sorry, Brian, Um, this is not unique to the Pueblo office. This is happening statewide, and our friends in Colorado Springs or Grand Junction or Denver Boulder or Fort. Collins, they're all seeing the same thing mm-hmm. across the board with all, with uniform services as well as with attorneys.
0: And just to put this in perspective, um, when it comes to law enforcement and district attorney's office, you know, it's not an eight to five job. No, it's not. Um, it, when you're a, a police officer and an attorney, it, it it basically swallows your life, and that's hard. And, and you can see where that burnout comes from. And then you know echoing the rhetoric that it was kind of anti law enforcement out there i I have friends that were cops that just quit. They were yeah. just, they're done. They're well,
2: late. and some of the things, too, it, are the uh, the liability for, for mm-hmm. individual liability for officers, and they've talked about it for attorneys. And nobody wants to go into this if you don't have some sort of governmental protection for the yeah. jobs you do. On occasion, mistakes are made. Everybody makes mistakes, whether you're a doctor, you're a lawyer, you're a dentist. If you're a contractor, you're an architect, jobs can be made. Mm-hmm. But to be held personally and, in some cases, criminally liable for this mm-hmm. uh, is driving people away from the profession. Uh, Yeah. From the profession. Yeah. Um, Can I add just a couple other of the experimental programs? I mentioned behavioral health and bed court. Mm -hmm. Um, But we also have the lead program that you may Mm -hmm. be aware of. That's the law enforcement assisted diversion program. That has been very successful. We've run through about 220 clients in the last three years. Mm -hmm. And the recidivism rate is about uh, half of what our normal clientele is. So, but again, it's very labor and Mm -hmm. time intensive, Um, you get a great bang for the buck, but there's a lot of bucks that have to be spent to get there. And you know, you just don't have the time to put that in it. And one other thing, uh, Dave Lucero from the Sheriff's Office, he and I went uh, to Nashville about a month ago to look at a diversion program that they're using, which is getting some national attention. Again, I think there's portions of that program that can be brought here um, that's similar to LEED, but it expands the LEED criteria. Right. Uh, but we're looking at that because we, we understand, you know, um, there's many facets to crime and it has to be addressed in many different ways. I think we're doing that. I think it was effective. I'm concerned that the legislature has kind of kind of pulled the rug out from underneath us.
1: They feel pretty disconnected. I remember um, when we were talking about, and we came out a fairly very aggressively against a lot of the legislation that you talked about and some other that we saw that was um, just this whole push uh, to really. Um, it felt. It felt very aggressive, a solution seeking a problem that didn't exist in Colorado.
2: Um, that's how it felt. I think that's a good way to put it, Sarah. I really do. And there seems to be a push, and it's across the board, from all institutions to let people out to, to migrate them back into the community. I think it's premature in so many cases. Mm-hmm. But if you look at DOC, if you look at probation, if you look at parole, uh, if you look at the bail criteria that the judges use, it's all with a view towards integrating people back into the community. I think in general, that's not a bad idea, but you have to make sure these people are ready to do it before, before you can put them back. The problem that I see, the way it manifests itself is that 70% of our, of our homicides, 70% of our drive-by shootings, 70% of our officer involved shootings are with people who are out on some condition of release. If they had only stayed in jail for the period that had been, they had been sentenced you would not have these follow-on crimes. I'll give you a, a, a good example of it. Uh, a few months ago, we had a murder over by Centennial High School, mm-hmm. and we had a person who was also critically injured in that. The shooter, our defendant, we had convicted of another crime and was sentenced to six years. This happened twelve months after that. He was out in twelve months. Wow! If if he had just served half of his sentence, uh, contemplating what he had done. One person would be alive, and one person wouldn't have been injured. And maybe this person would have cooled off a little bit. He, but he got out, and he had revenge on his mind. Mm-hmm. And within 12 months, he was able to to wreak it. That, that's the thing that bothers me, is that we're not keeping people in jail for the adjudicated periods of time, and they're back out on the street ca- causing problems again. We had another situation over in Bessemer where uh, an elderly gentleman uh, was sitting down for dinner one night mm-hmm. and he heard somebody rattling around in the alley and messing with his garage door. Mm-hmm. So he goes out, there's three young men there who are trying to get into his garage. He tries to stop and say, what are you doing? They shoot and kill him mm-hmm. again out on parole. So you have, I could, those are at least two deaths that I can talk about where if these people had just served their sentence, these other you know, law-abiding citizens would be would be alive. So that's that's worrisome to me.
1: The, that's incredibly worrisome. Yeah. The other part is this legislation that's being driven. Uh, they. In large part, completely ignored the recommendations of people like you who are on the front lines, who have to make this work, who have to keep safety. They talk about school safety, they talk about other safety, but there that was that felt completely disregarded in the whole um, the whole process and the whole scheme. Um, we were screaming, "Look, listen to listen to the um, law enforcement, listen to the DAs, listen to these people who are actually." trying to keep us safe. And that was pretty much thrown uh, out. Has that changed? Do you feel like that that's getting better? Well, or that's we'll see. Changed at all?
2: Well, we'll see. We're mm-hmm. in the middle of a session right now mm-hmm. and we'll find out what's going to, what's going to come out of it. I, I do hear that there's pushback that maybe there's some reevaluation of what was done in the last two sessions. And maybe that needs to be moderated. We'll see whether that we'll translates see. into bills. Um, I, another one for an example for you, you may hear of palpo from on occasion, it's possession of a weapon by a prior offender. Palpo is, oh, okay. is the acronym for it. Um, and they modified that and it was, it was kind of a, a marriage made in hell as far as I was concerned, because you had the far right and you had the far left come together on this. You had the, 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 gist of the, of the, the prior, um, Status of the law was that if you were a convicted felon, Mm -hmm. you lost a lot of privileges of, of citizenship. You couldn't vote. But one of them was you couldn't possess a weapon. Right. So, um, you know, the far right, this was a Second Amendment kind of thing. You can't take away guns from people who didn't use a gun in the commission of offense. And you got the far left saying this is governmental overreach. We don't think a government should be able to come in and tell people what to do. So people who normally don't agree with each other at all agreed on, came, agreed on this one. And so people who are felons now have certain classes of felons now have guns back in their hands. And Chief Noller at the police department can show you that since that modification to the palpo law went into effect our shootings are up about 3 times wow. and our and our homicides as you may know are double what they were a year ago we had 29 homicides in 2021 in a community of 170,000 people which is the 10th judicial district that's pueblo county mm-hmm. so you got 110,000 of that in the city and the and the remainder Uh, is in Pueblo County and that equals about 170,000 people you should have, and not to be cynical about this, but you should expect statistically you will have eight to 12 murders a year in a community Mm of that That size, size. but not 29, 29 is 29 is way too high. And, and, and there's a a lot of reasons for it. It's not just Palpo, but that's a contributing factor to it. And part of it is not keeping people in jail for the, for the length of time that was adjudicated. So, um, you know, and of course, you can look at the other social factors too, whether you're looking at crime and, and joblessness and homelessness and all those kind of things. That, that all contributes. But the things that I'm trying to control and influence are those ones at the legislature mm-hmm. um, that I can have input on.
0: And to be clear, because we don't want to scare people away from the beautiful city of Pueblo, you know, this is a problem across the board. Yeah. It's not just Pueblo. It's any community you go into.
2: Absolutely right. And once a month, we have a we have a district attorney's meeting where all 22 of us, I, I don't know how many of your listeners realize this, but there's 22 judicial districts in the state. Ours is the 10th. Mm-hmm. Um, But we get together once a month, and I can tell you we're all experiencing it across the board. Uh, So much so that the Attorney General, Phil Weiser, and the new U.S. Attorney, Cole Finnegan, came to our last meeting pledging resources to help us take care of this. And and Mr. Finnegan has been uh, exceptionally aggressive in his short period. Mr. Weiser has been very helpful to our office in a number of cases, Mm -hmm. but. uh, Most notably, the Dante Lucas case that some of your viewers may know about. Yes. Uh, That was a case that we uh, were successful on a year ago.
1: Remind people who don't know about this because this was a really big big deal. deal. This was a nationally.
2: Yeah. This was probably the the biggest murder case uh, in the, not probably, it was the biggest case in Colorado at the time. And I think maybe in the top 20 nationally, you know, it was featured on 2020 and Court TV and Dateline and and whatnot. That's how big it was. But I I do want to give Mr. Weiser credit for helping out because we assembled a really crackerjack team of prosecutors for that, Uh, one of which came from his office. He dedicated this attorney down here for two years. Yeah, uh, that's uh, highly unusual. And then anytime we had an appellate issue or a motion issue, he gave us his uh, appellate staff. He had two of his attorneys up in Denver that would intercede on our behalf and, and help us with that. So it was a really good cooperative effort. And I give Mr. Weiser credit for that. Hey. Mr. Mr. Finnegan is also helping. I'm sorry to interrupt, oh. Brian. Uh, but Mr. Finnegan is really going out of his way to have a discussion statewide to answer your question statewide. What can we do? Because, yeah, Pueblo's having a problem. But I can tell you, it's uh, it's just as bad elsewhere.
0: And and just to to give everybody credit that was involved with that case, you know that was a long drawn out process, and you had to make sure every box was checked and this was done the right way. And I know there was some backlash from the community at times saying like that's taking too long. You know we yeah. knew this guy did it and stuff, but the way that your office and everybody involved handled it, it was professional. It did take a while, but and then you know justice was served. It was you know that's an interesting. Story that could be
2: a subject of another book, of mine. <laughs> right. but uh, it, it, um, that case really was with me from the time I was first sworn in as DA. I came in in January of 13, and that murder took place the first week of February. So, within yeah. a month of me coming into office, it had taken place. We didn't actively get involved with, with it for about four years because mm-hmm. we kept waiting for law enforcement agencies to be able to, to crack the case. Um, Uh, Me and a select group of folks here, Troy Davenport, Kirk Taylor, um, people from my office, we all went up to Denver for a cold case um, review of it, which is very interesting because they'll bring in the FBI, ATF, uh, CBI. They bring in all these investigative agencies and they'll spend a day looking at your case and just trying to give you ideas. I came out of that, as, as helpful as that was, I didn't think we were moving at a fast mm-hmm. pace. You being a military person, some of your army <laughs> uh, viewers out there, I thought we were moving like a large land army about uh, a mile you know, a week. <laughs> I thought I needed a commando team Mm -hmm. to crack the case. So I put together six people here locally in conjunction with the CBI. And we met every week saying, what do we need? Who do we need to interview? What piece of evidence do we need tested? We went back and forth and back and forth and just refined the case until after about – eight months, we got to the point where we're around the table and I said, what else is there? Do we have anything else? And they said, no, sir, this is, this is it. What well, this is as good as this case is going to get. So it was then in my courts to say, well, is it good enough to charge? Yeah. And I, and I, I said, yeah, we got to charge this. It, the The community needed healing. The family needed healing. Um One way or another, this case had to be resolved. I could not kick it back in my conscience and say, "This is just too tough to do or it's it 's not provable or whatever right. i said no i i, I think I, I i think we can prove this case it 's going to take a good piece of lawyer in but i I got a great team that can do it, and I thought morally we should go for it and I thought legally we were we had the yeah. the uh, basis to go forward to. So. But anyway, it, it, so. And from there, that team came together and gelled, and it just got better. It, it's one of the few cases. I'm sorry. I'm proud of this case. No, <laughs> no. no, no. <laughs> yeah. But it's one of the few cases I've ever seen in my career that got better with time. Hmm. Most cases that you run into, as you can imagine, witnesses go away, memories right. fade, evidence degrades, all that sort of thing. That wasn't true in this case. Hmm. The longer we were on it, the better we got with phone taps, with other physical evidence that we had that, that we found that, um, you know, we should have had earlier, but we didn't. We got it later. Right. In any event, the case got better over time. So time really worked in your favor it, it really, on this For, for it, yeah. what you were able to get. One of the few times I can say yeah. that time worked in the favor of the prosecution. Wow.
1: And tell everybody how it all ended up.
2: It ended <laughs> up with a conviction uh, and and fairly quickly, too. I, I, may, I may be off a little bit on this, but basically um, final arguments were made throughout, uh, throughout a morning. It went to the jury immediately after lunch, about one o'clock in the afternoon, and they were back before five o'clock. Wow. Yeah, so it was it, so super it, it fast. Went, it went very quickly. So within about four hours, they took a case that took us eight years. Yeah. yeah. To break. I mean, from the time of, of Kelsey's death until we
0: got a conviction, it was roughly eight years. So I'm going to ask one more crime sure. question. Sure, I'm sorry. If uh, I'm no, 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 no that's, no. that's what we want to hear. But I, I want to get into some more lighthearted, fun stuff. This. But, but when it comes to the, specifically the shootings here in Pueblo, Uh-oh. would you say it's is it random shootings? Is it like somebody breaking into a house? Or is it the victim connected to the it, shooter? It's,
2: it's, not, it's not random. Okay. And I think people should not be afraid that they drive down the main street of Pueblo Mm -hmm. and somebody randomly is going to shoot them. It is unfortunately kind of restricted to uh, an an area or two of town Mm -hmm. and within a certain demographic. Mm -hmm. Um, And if you're not in that side of town and if you're uh, not in that demographic, young and a gang member, Mm -hmm. Pueblo is a great community and you're not going to run into it. Same way, you know, there's a lot of attention uh, paid to carjackings. That's true, you know, that that kind of went up again. But again, it's happening in a certain part of town. It's happening within a certain um, group of people who run right. together. And quite frankly, there's a certain level of stupidity for people who leave keys in the cars, cars running <laughs> on a cold morning. I mean, there's a certain amount that this yeah. is self-inflicted. No. Yeah. Right. So I hate to say that. And and of course we'll go after them for taking the car that the, the, the fact that the is there does not excuse him, yes, yes. but you need to take that opportunity away from them.
0: Yeah. I, uh, the best deterrence for people breaking into my car is it's there's a lot of trash in it because i have a (laughs) lot of kids and and funny enough uh uh, we were getting some neat um somewhere here in town and, uh, we saw some people looking in cars. I'm like, Oh, they're looking for stuff, you know? And they got to our car and they kind of leaned in and looked and shook their head and walked away. And I'm like, see, that's why I don't clean the van out <laughs> there.
2: Well, and, and, you know, and I say that, but you know, I, I had a, a leaf blower stolen from yeah. the shed, um, you know, little things I've had, uh, my wife had a little sculpture by the, by the fence on mm-hmm. the, thing. the sculpture went missing. So we, we've had very, very minor things yeah, too, yeah. but uh, some, of the, some of that's just living in the inner city, which yeah. is where I chose intentionally to live yeah. when I came back. Pueblo was my hometown. I didn't want to live on the outskirts. I wanted to live in the, in the heart of things. Yeah. And it has been a great benefit to me that we've been able to do that. Yeah.
0: Well, um, okay. Fun stuff now, well, uh, or a more lighthearted. Wait, I, I need I, one more. Okay. Give one me more. one more. One more.
1: So Jeff, what is a solution that you're working on right now. I want we like we like solutions around yes. here. So let's talk a solution for for
2: crime. Yeah, I I do have faith in a lot of these specialty courts that we've done. Like I say, they're yeah. they labor time and resource uh, uh, intense. But I they they, they uh, work on what we refer to as individ- individual harm reduction, right. as opposed to crime reduction. If you're familiar mm-hmm. with it, yep. Yes. Uh, exactly. So it helps an individual, but it does help with crime reduction because mm-hmm. if you can, if you can uh, stop somebody from needing drugs, uh, can get somebody a job and decent housing crime will go down with that individual. Right. And if you get enough of those individuals, individuals
1: then it doesn't spread. And it, it doesn't it's, spread and it, because it's so interlocked. It's so it's not random. It's not, you know, just whatever nope. it is with um, within certain groups and within yeah. certain connections. And, and
2: I've seen it statistically with our with our recidivism rate on on uh, on lead. But I've seen it with the other courts. Um what I've been trying to drive, and I worked with the judiciary a little bit. I worked with Judge Carnes. I'm now working with Judge Ernst. She's new to it, but I'm sure she and I will uh, have the same you know, philosophical bent on this. But I'm trying to have an overall comprehensive view of crime, one, just being tough. We're going to mm-hmm. put felons and right. deadly people off the street. Get them off the street and have them stay off the street. For the other people that we can help who aren't ordinarily criminals, mm-hmm. then I want to do things through the LEAD program, through behavioral health, through veterans court, um, through this diversion program that we're looking at in Nashville, I have a, a juvenile diversion program in my office. And what I've been working on with Judge Carn and now Judge Ernst and a, a number of people is, um, to try and get people who were picked up for substance abuse to get them out of jail earlier if we can. But the thing that I've said is I want post incarceration treatment, right? Yes. It doesn't do me any good to say this guy served time. We let him out on the streets and, and literally within two hours, he's back. He's at with it. his buddies yeah. back at yeah. two hours yeah. to two weeks. Yeah. Um, but if we can, I've said, I will let them out of jail early if I can get them in a treatment program in a treatment facility. We don't have that yet. Right. Um, but we're working on that. Um, so I do think that there's some uh, some, you know, light at the end of the tunnel with regard to crime. The other thing, though, and I can't completely divorce myself from this is social conditions that lead to crime. Right. And I can't when I was on city council years ago, I came to the conclusion that the best thing that you can do to to stop crime is to put people to work. Have a have a breadwinner in the family, because if you have a breadwinner in the family. You know, they they tend, substance abuse is down, spousal abuse is down, Mm -hmm. kids tend to be in school, you tend to be in social organizations, you know, all those kind of things trend in the right um, direction if you are financially sound. Right. If you don't have a breadwinner in the family and money's not there, you know, substance abuse is up, too much drinking, uh, the the domestic violence goes up because there's this underlying uh, anger. Uh, kids aren't doing well in school, they're not going to Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, they're not going to church. All those kinds of things trend in the wrong direction. So I, I, to the extent that I can, I do try and work a little bit with city council and with the county commissioners on doing things that help the community become more prosperous, right. put people to work, and I think it has a knock-on effect
0: on the crime rate.
1: So treating the disease, not the symptom. Yeah,
2: yeah. that's right.
0: And, and it's important, too, to realize that especially after COVID and everything, all the craziness of the world right now, um, everybody falls on hard times and they're just humans, they're people. Mm -hmm. And you don't want to ruin somebody's life, which will inherently ruin everybody's life around them or could possibly do that by just locking them in jail and throwing away the key. Like this is truly actually trying to help people to better society and uh, human beings.
2: Yeah, it's, it's a balance of trying to, you know, modulate yeah. that syncopated that I don't mind being hard and going after felons and putting them in jail. Yeah. I have no conscience about that. Yeah. But there's a whole group of people that you can help yeah. you know, that the criminal justice system doesn't doesn't uh, directly assist. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Right. And we we have that conversation just um, down in the Valley yep. because they have some substance abuse issues there but yeah. you know somebody goes to jail they lose their medicaid benefits mm-hmm. and then they get out and and housing was a big one too that um one of their programs down there was a former addict as part of this board that that basically advises this commission on specifically op- opioid abuse and she was like i'm out of jail you know i did get clean in jail. couldn't rent a place couldn't find a place right. so where do i go I go to my friends that I used to use with and go to their couch and then it just starts yeah, over. Just starts you're sitting watching the TV and the cats and somebody starts passing the uh, yeah. stuff yeah. around. Yeah,
2: And
1: that's the only ones that are embracing them are the people that they were getting into trouble with in the first I, place. I
2: just saw a, a person this morning, um, not involved in the criminal justice system at all. A hardworking guy. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is this is kind of the unintended consequence of prosperity. But, you know, housing prices are going up in Pueblo. Right. Uh, we've been discovered and, and all that. Well, the the fella who owned the house that he was in decided to sell it because the prices are up. Yep. Yeah. And so he's out on the street with a wife that's in a wheelchair and he hadn't done anything wrong. He's a law-abiding citizen. Right. So imagine that, you know, he's saying, where do I go? What do I do?
1: Can't afford
2: anything else. I can't afford anything else. And and he's never been in trouble. Yeah. So just imagine the person who has been in trouble and his likelihood of getting decent housing is even less. So, yeah. Yeah. yeah.
0: Well lighthearted. Yes, lighthearted. No, <laughs> no, because I, I wanted to get into this while we have time. And yeah. We got about twenty five more minutes till two thirty. Okay. That's okay. Um so retired colonel from the Air Force. Um you're a JAG officer, correct? Yes, sir. Um but you you come from a tradition of military service and you love history as much as I do, and you have written some books about your family about your father about Pueblo um, let's uh, tell us about some of the books you have out there I'm just
2: uh, I yeah I'm just kind of a history geek and then that kind of translates into personal history as well mm-hmm. and uh, my grandfather was really the one who's who did the genealogical work but we've had relatives in in the service not professional or career folks but in the service since the revolution so and on both sides of the revolution <laughs> both sides of the Civil War so yeah, yeah. I guess we can't make up our mind yeah but uh, he, he he was the one who kind of died documented at first, um, my dad died early when I was 12. And so he was kind of the main male figure. My grandfather was in my life. He was a world war one vet. Mm-hmm. And like me, he was kind of a, a pack rat when it came to, uh, letters and documentation and whatnot. So, um, he had saved about 275 letters, postcards, postcards, telegrams from my dad during world war two back home. Mm -hmm. I knew about those. So I gathered up all of those. And in about 2009, I published a book on my dad Mm -hmm. uh, and his nine other buddies from Central. You're a Central guy, right? I am a Central guy. And um, (laughs) so I referred to him as the Central Mm 10. And um, I transcribed all the letters And then I did a a kind of an introduction as to who these guys were. And then I did an epilogue as to what happened to all 10 of them after the war. So I put that together.
1: I have both those books in the shelf. Shall I grab them?
2: Yeah. Get them. And at the time I wrote them, three of the 10 were still alive. Wow. So I had the chance to kind of reconnect with my dad through them all these these years later. But interestingly enough, my grandfather never told me, and I discovered... That he had letters that uh, my grandmother had collected from him during World War I. Oh wow! So I took his letters, and this was you know thirty years, forty years after he had forty years after yeah. he had passed on, and put together kind of this tale of my grandparents meeting each other. He oh, wow. had come out here. He had worked for the Rock Island and worked down at the train depot. In 1916 and had met her through she went to Centennial and he had met her through through uh, high school dances and whatnot. <laughs> and then the war broke out and um, he uh, enlisted and, uh, and uh, you know, they, the, the letters between them kind of discuss what's going on in France. He was he was involved in the St. Me Hill Drive mm-hmm. in September 1918, which as an Air Force guy, you might be interested was the first combined operations between Although it was the Army Air Corps Mm -hmm. between Army Air Corps and the and the Army. So it was the first combined operations. And he was he was at St. Meal. And then the book goes up through their through their wedding uh, about a year after the war. Wow. So interestingly enough, though, I had less texts from my grandfather, but I had more photos Hmm. Than my dad, I had more text from my dad, but fewer photos. So I, you would have thought the technology would have just been the mm-hmm. opposite, but yeah, it's what they collected.
0: Well, I, and um, and those stories are important. You know, I, I was part of the the Veterans History Project where we interviewed people, yeah. and and I got into that when um, we visited my my uncle. Growing up, he lived in Idaho, and that side of my family they were all from Germany, mm-hmm. so they came over as kids pre World War II. And, uh, spoke perfect German. So when world war two kicked off, world war one, uh, yeah, world war, well, they, they were in world war two, they were all OSS guys. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, two of my uncles, um, they went in the OSS when they're younger cause they could speak German. Maybe, maybe
2: I anticipated you, but I, I thought you were going to tell me speaking perfect German because you know, after world war one, Germans were discriminated in this country and to integrate, they all
0: stopped speaking German. Yeah. Yeah. They, they spoke English at home, but they came over right after world war one, probably. And then when world war two happened, the kids, they were of military age at the time. Um, I think my, my uncle said he lied about his age, just like, (laughs) I believe my grandfather did too. Uh, Um, and he went straight into the OSS and that's what he did. And, and, he never talked about it. And then just one day when he was getting older, he sat us down. I was like 12 and he opened up his treasure chest of everything from the war and we we're just like, Holy cow. Yeah. I, I mean, and he would told a story, yeah, you know, so wild was, Bill Donovan and some of those folks. He, yeah. He knew, um, one of the guys he was with was on, uh, was it green acres? Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Green, uh, green acres. Uh, Albert, Eddie Albert. Uh, yeah. And he was, yeah, he was a, uh,
2: I read just, I just tripped across something about him too. He was at D-Day, but he was, he was also an OSS.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And he, he was with him. He had pictures with him at, yeah. at some point, but, um, you know, he was showing us, he, he kept some of these weapons that they used to do back then. Not so much anymore, but he still had his smash it which was, it was basically a knife they carried, but it was weighted. So it kind of looked like a hatchet and it had the garrot wire on it. Mm. And, you know, as a kid looking at that saying like, what is this for? And it's like, well, you know, you could just split yeah. somebody open or do this. And, um, he had a gas gun too, that they used that was real quiet that can do it. But, but then after that, I started digging in and both on my mom and dad's side, kind of going through the history because none of these people talked about it. Yeah. Like at all. Yeah. Like he was a truck driver in Idaho. That was it. You know, my, my grandfather retired here and, and nobody talked about it. And he, he, we had a pry and it was important for people to hear those stories to, the, you know, you have to preserve that history because as we're seeing in the world today, history repeats itself. Absolutely. And we need that. Fortunately, I think people are recognizing it today yeah. as to that
2: he, uh, in, my grandfather, uh, had the Midwest business college, which is down on the Pope block mm-hmm. on fourth street. And my grandmother ran a store called, solar state music company and she sold it to the Martin family. And many people here in Pueblo remember Martin music. That mm-hmm. was my grandmother who started. Oh, wow. Well, the,
1: my mom went to business, Midwest business yeah. college, yeah. And, you know, at, in those days she, she was really smart. She could have been engineering math or whatever, but her dad said, you, you're a girl, you can't do those things. So you're going to go and learn how to type and be a secretary at, at Midwest business college. Yeah. So she got her degree there. It
2: may have been my grandmother because my grandmother did, uh, shorthand. She did mm-hmm. typing. My mom she did accounting all and all that. Things, I, bet, yep. I bet she might have been her teacher. Probably. Um, but, in, you know, in those days, too, particularly after World War II, you either went to the service, you went to university, but it was a very small slice of American society that went to university. You went to a business college mm-hmm. or right. you went to the steel mill. You right. know, So the options were pretty clear. So th- mm-hmm. you may be right about channeling her that because she was female. I think that's right, probably right. right yeah. mm-hmm. On the other hand, it was probably bettering her uh, as a, uh, as a yeah, way as to get status, out yeah. Yeah, yeah. to
1: get out and to but do Sam, something. A, more.
2: a bunch of people went to the business college, Sam Corsentino went there. Uh, Chris Munoz went there. Art Gonzalez went there. Oh yeah. So they, I, I would always bump into people. that say, uh, you know, I went to the school and they gave him a leg up in life in those. Yes. Yeah, days. yeah. yeah uh, for sure. Last thing I'll say is uh, I'll get off this, but um my grandfather, as I say, was in the army, World War One, and in the in the book, I, I discovered a letter mm-hmm. that he sent to the War Department at that time. It wasn't the Defense Department, but to the War Department on December eighth, nineteen forty one. Oh wow! Offering to rejoin. Wow! Oh wow! And as we all remember, December seventh, Pearl right. Harbor. Yeah. But the, that was a Sunday. The next day, Monday, he shot off a letter to the War Department saying, "I want to, you know, re-enlist. And what was the response? Uh, the, the response is in there too. Thank you very much. Uh, we appreciate your patriotism and all, but we think we got it.
1: We, think, know, we, got we it. think we got it. We think so we true. can
2: win this one without you. That, that was
0: uh, after. Yeah, and he was. Yeah, I think at that time he was about forty-seven years of age. So oh he, wow, he was a little beyond yeah. draft yeah. age. Yeah. Well, they the, after uh, September 11th, when I deployed, like immediately yeah. after our uh, first sergeant had. Retired the month before, he's like, just let me sneak in a bag. I'll just, come. <laughs> you know, he was like, yeah. he, he was gearing to go, and they're they like, you can't go. You you are old. You cannot go. <laughs> but, yep. um, you know, Pueblo, it, it's all roads lead to Pueblo and anything I've done, whether it's in working on the hill in D.C., yeah. um, anywhere, it seems like there's some weird connection to Pueblo with people. I it's, keep
2: telling people, I, I've coined
0: this phrase that Pueblo is the hub of the universe. Yeah.
2: yeah. You know, everybody passes through here in some connection one way
0: or yeah. another. They may not stay, but they have touched this place. Yeah, and it's even, like I said, in Washington, D.C., you throw a rock, you hit somebody from yeah, Pueblo. Yeah, And they may have just like been born here and moved away or have family here. But And it was to the upper levels of the government, you know, from even like Dana Perino, who was the press secretary yeah, from Pueblo, absolutely. you know, anybody like that. But, you know, Pueblo does have a rich history of presidents visiting um, VIPs coming here, you know, influential people. Yeah. So out of everybody, know, cool everybody, everybody that's ever been here in Pueblo, what's your favorite person or favorite story of somebody visiting? Oh, somebody who came. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, you know, I'm
2: serious, but, there's but yep, I'm trying yep, to yeah. actually think of other people that I, that I saw or met here in town, um, in my youth. Um, I had a friend that lived in Canyon city and in those days, uh, Buckskin Joe used to be mm-hmm. used for movie sets. So I, I met Warren Oates and Lee Van Cleef, uh, because their parents, I had a friend who ran the old Canyon city reporter. So they would do a cast party uh, welcome. And so I got invited when I was in high school to go see some of these guys. (laughs) So that was kind of interesting. Um, so that kind of thing. But the 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 one that I didn't see and which led to the book was President Kennedy mm-hmm. and uh I was torn between going to see him and I thought mm-hmm. it was important to see President Kennedy. But I also had a baseball game to play. So, <laughs> <laughs> and so, so that's so,
1: how we know you're a real Pueblo boy. Yeah. If I went, you're gonna if you're gonna play baseball overseeing a president, that means you're from Pueblo.
2: And I and I went up to uh the fields at East High School to play my old timers game up there. And my coach was a fellow named Bill Lacero. I don't know whether you know Judge Lucero, Bill Lucero, but he was quarterback for East, and he was uh, quite a wrestler and all-around athlete. Mm -hmm. But he is now the presiding disciplinary judge. Uh, for the state of Colorado, he's appointed wow. by the Supreme Court. So the last thing a lawyer wants to get is a letter from Judge Lacero. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because you're seeing a disciplinary judge. Um, but so I went up and play and I've got pictures of that uh, uh, with with Bill uh, playing mm-hmm. up there. And did so you say old timers? That's the name of it. The Old Timers League. Mm-hmm. Okay. At your Many of your view, viewers you will were, remember old times. you were
1: a kid mm-hmm. at the time. I was a kid. That's
0: what yeah. it was called. Oh, okay. Yeah. It, was called, it was like the Babe Ruth League. Or oh, like gotcha, 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 gotcha. Yeah, I, I just found out one that I didn't even know. Um, Roosevelt visited Pueblo, and there's a project out east that's going to, I think, a solar project. And they were looking what to name it. And he came out there to visit it. And so they, they might name it the Rough Riders Solar Project. Oh, oh yeah. No, no spoilers. There, no there's spoiler there's alert. Cool. Sorry. Yeah, sorry. Yeah, if it, yeah. I won't say whose land it is, but.
2: Yeah. You can figure
0: it out pretty quick. There's been quite well.
2: And as I understand it, again, I'm kind of a history geek and a Pueblo mm. history geek. As I understand it, I was trying to figure out which Roosevelt you were talking about, because I think FDR came through mm-hmm. here on a whistle stop tour. But Teddy Roosevelt came through to dedicate the YMCA. OK. And old Pueblans it. will remember oh. that was down on like eighth and yeah. Greenwood or something. It's yeah. been torn down. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he was here in nineteen 19- eight. Something yeah. like that. I may be off on the date, but yeah. while he was still president, yeah, yeah, he came here and dedicated the the new uh, YMCA.
0: Okay, I see. I didn't know that. Like, I, I know most of them, but that
2: was one that he came through. And of course, the, probably the most famous one is is Woodrow Wilson, mm-hmm. right? Uh, because he came to dedicate Memorial Hall. Mm-hmm. It's called Memorial Hall for the World War One deaths, yep. right? So he came there. He was pushing the League of Nations. He talked mm-hmm. there. And then got on the train to make another stop at another town. And he got to about Avondale and he was feeling poorly. And they stopped the train. Mm-hmm. And uh, and this is based on newspaper accounts. I'm mm-hmm. not making this up. So right. they, they stopped the train. He got off. In Avondale, and he walked from the train tracks down towards the uh, Arkansas. And can you imagine? Here, there's there's vets sitting on the, you know, they've only been out of the army a year, yeah, right, and uh, come walking down the street. The president of the United States, (laughs) (laughs) and he, I think they got it was harvest time. It was in November, and they, I think they gave him some apples and some other vegetables, that kind of thing, or fruits, and got him back on the train. And shortly thereafter is when he had his stroke, right. And so they opened up the lines from. From Avondale <laughs> to Washington D.C. Yeah. again, another hub of the universe story. Yeah, because you know, you then you get into Mrs. Wilson, who mm-hmm. many think was in, in a way the first woman president de facto, mm-hmm. um, because nobody saw President Wilson for about five months. Yeah. yeah, and she was the one that took in letters to be signed and all that. So it's an interesting story.
0: Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, again, public. <laughs> of oh, the universe. <laughs> and <laughs> and I'm sorry, I'm sure we're boring your visit. No, 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 this is interesting. This is what I wanted to talk about.
2: So. And we'll get back on something more serious. So uh, one time at, uh, I was at my grandparents' house up on Van Buren and I forget how it came up, but my grandmother said, well, you know, your dad was in the movie Wilson. And I said no. And Wilson, if you look back on it, it's, it was a legitimate movie with Frederick March. Yeah. It was nominated for an Academy Award, and it was a World War II movie that tried to link up the generations, fathers and sons. You fought okay. in Europe in 1918, yeah. and yeah. we were back there in 1944. It's right. a 1944 movie. She said, "Yeah, your dad came home, and he wanted clothes, jackets, and stuff to look like uh, um, you know somebody who from 1918." And they filmed. If you ever see the movie Wilson. Mm-hmm they filmed it at the train depot and they have frederick march as as wilson come there and he's talking from the back of a train on a whistle stop tour but they show crowd scenes mm-hmm. so uh i don't know about 25 years ago i said i was telling my wife and kids i said yeah my grandmother said dad's in the let's look so we watched the film it was a nice little historical film anyway and honest to god crowd scenes there's my dad <laughs> <In front laughs> <of> her, <laughs> of her, wearing a hat and a coat. I had to stop the film. To, to take the a look head? at. I hadn't oh, seen what? him since I was 12 years old. And there oh, he was my back. Gosh, yeah, right there. Yeah, right there. Wow. So, uh, <laughs> and my aunt was in it too. So I oh, have to go cool. find that now. It's yeah. probably
1: on Amazon. Yeah.
2: I think oh, so. it's, a, it's a, yeah. people know about the movie. Yeah. It's yeah. not, it's not like a, it's an old movie. So in a sure, sense, people sure, don't sure. know it, but, uh, but it's out there. People yeah. are aware of it. We've watched it in school. I think, uh, Middle school or grade school, I remember. But it was, it it was filmed here in town, or
0: part of wow. the, the, the uh, stroke scene, the heart attack scene was filmed here. Yeah. Well, I was always disappointed because in school they always said that uh, Robocop was filmed at the steel mill. <laughs> and then it was like Terminator 2, none of that really happened. But the uh, National Lampoon's Vacation, you know, they stopped at the hotel on Lake Avenue and then went out to Avondale, and that well, was Cousin Eddie's house. For your, for your viewers here with Action 22, I'm sure folks downstream
2: oh, are all yeah. aware of Mr. Majestic, right? Yep. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, Charles Bronson, Linda oh, Crystal. Yeah. 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 I think the Majestic's bar is still there in uh in Manzanola or yeah.
0: Swink, one of the two, but yeah. Uh, yeah. where Bronson drank beer, so. Yeah, and then uh, <laughs> uh what's the other one? It's a bed and breakfast breakfast now, but Indiana Jones uh childhood house.
1: You no, know, we watched that last night. And yeah. it's in this the um, house is in Atnido and it was yeah. in Chama there when they're riding the train. That's over yep. Chama that's Pass all down there. and um yeah, that's all. Um, we, it's funny cause we, yeah, we were watching that last night. Yeah.
0: We'll yeah. Good, so. well, that's cool. Well, um, as we're wrapping up, I, I tend to ask my veteran guests, you know, what, what can you do to help out fellow veterans? Mm-hmm. What's just one piece of advice, you know, we got into the, the, thank you for your service or that type of thing. But how do you feel that somebody can help out veterans right now?
2: Um, this is not to be too hard nosed about. You know, when I hear, um, the uh, thank you for your service, Mm -hmm. the first thing I say is, You don't have to thank me, I volunteer. Yeah, but if you really want to thank me, why don't you join or have your kid join? Mm -hmm. Because you have one half of one percent of the American public defending the other 99.5 percent of them. Mm -hmm. That is morally not right. Yeah, Um, we all have to have buy into this country. Mm -hmm. Uh, I noticed and kind of on a a similar note, I noticed in the paper, uh, a congressman was saying everybody in this country needs to pay a tax. I actually am sympathetic to that because you've only got about 50 percent of the of the country paying a tax. What I don't care if you have to pay 50 bucks, Mm -hmm. but you need to feel like you're part of the club. Yeah. And, And I think everybody should pay something to be here. And I think. Uh, some sort of service to this country is uh, should be required now I don't think it can be the old draft that we had you know in mm-hmm. the 60s um, but I think government service is and if if you say you can either choose your branch of service or you can go to Vista or you can go to the Peace Corps or you can go to the civilian conservation corps I don't care what it is I think two years of government service mm-hmm. um, it should be required I think there is a general feeling in the in the country that that's true, mm-hmm. but when you try and translate that into actual political action and the, yeah. and the Congress had to vote on an actual draft, yeah. I don't think it can yes. happen. I don't think there's a political will to do it. Probably the last time in our lifetime that could have happened might've been nine 11. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, in terms of those who have served, um, you know, I think some of the things they have restored, the GI bill, mm-hmm. I think back to what the the old World War II one that has been restored. I think that's good. It's not mm-hmm. modified um, so that people can buy a house, get an education. I think that's that's good uh I think. I'm not sure because I'm not, uh, I haven't been directly affected by it, but to make sure a tune up in veteran services. So like our friend Butch Chavez that we yeah. were talking about and others, make sure they're adequately cared for. I mean, isn't that what Lincoln said after the yeah. civil war, yeah. to bind up the wounds, take care of the widow, the orphan, um, that sort of that, that have suffered from the war. I, I think, I think that's the least we can do for, yeah. for these folks. So uh, I don't know that that really answered your question, no, no, Brian, because it's, that's it's a perfect. tough nut to crack. It, it is, it is. Um, but that's kind of my views on some of the things yeah. too. And um, can I say one thing too yeah. about if you brought a draft back? And I, you're talking about <clears throat> the contentious nature of the country we're in. And you and I have always reached across party lines mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and make sure we do the best for folks, but. I think one of the things we have to bring back in this country is a feeling that we're all part of the same country. Even if we disagree on where that country should go, we all need to remember we're all part of the great American family. And we all need to take care of each other and respect each other's opinions on things. And I think that has been lost. I've never tried in, in my political life to be excessively combative or to be excessively partisan. I don't think that gets things done. And I don't think the public needs to be barked at by their politicians. That's a and, big one. <laughs> and, and and I won't yeah. do that. Yeah. Um, I would rather just hold it and take it realizing that, um, you know, that's part that goes with the job. Yeah. You know? um, but, uh, but I, I always say, uh, I try and be honest with people and I try and, try and shoot straight with them. You know, people talk about transparency. What I tell people is, you know, since I'm an elected official, I owe you an answer. Yeah. You ask me a question. I owe you an answer. I don't owe you the answer you want. That's, no. that's a very that's, valid point, but, but I owe you an answer so that you know where I stand on yes. issues now to the extent mm-hmm. and probably 80, 85% of the time I can give an, an answer that takes care of them, but there's going to be a certain percentage that I can't and they need to know that up front, Yeah. but they deserve an answer. Yes.
1: And you always deliver on that. So my last question is this, the three of us have spent our entire careers serving our community, every single one of us. So what needs to be done to serve our community on our local community and the region right now? What's the most important thing that we can do?
2: For me, uh, being an old Pueblo boy, and my family goes back here to 1875. I had a Union cavalry officer come out here uh, about 10 years after the war and set up set up shop. And uh, so my heart and soul is in Pueblo. We are talking about it mm-hmm. being the hub of the universe. I, I often say, too, Pueblo has a great magnet under it that draws people back, and I'm, I'm one of those that, that yeah. come back. You, yep. you too. Um, my observation is that I think this community needs a vision. Mm -hmm. I think it needs to have some sort of vision as to where it is and where it's going. And I think that needs to be articulated. I think we are one of the great communities in Colorado along the front range, and I think since the steel mill went down and army depot went down for the last 30 odd years, we've been kind of trying to figure out who we are mm-hmm. and cobble yeah. an economy back together. And we, we've done some of that, you know, we brought some of it back, but it hasn't been the constant paycheck that the steel mill or the PAD would bring you right. to support those families that I was talking about before so that they trend in the right direction because they have a paycheck every Friday night coming right, in, and healthcare and all that, that sort of thing. I think What I would like to see is a vision articulated for Pueblo as to, as to who we are and where we want to go. Do we want to become part of the, the great I-25 economy and, and hook into Colorado Springs and Denver, maybe bring Trinidad with us? Or are we our traditional east-west, uh, economy along rail lines from Salida to the Kansas border? Are we that or some combination of that? But, uh, we have a, we have an airport that needs to be developed. We have, we need to somehow, Um, lower the rhetoric and bring Pueblo West into a greater Pueblo cooperation. So you don't have this tripod of Pueblo (laughs) County, Pueblo City and Pueblo West fussing with each other unnecessarily. Yes. Uh, So we all work together and we promote ourselves together. Um, So I'd like to see that. I'd like to see. Everybody talks about economic opportunity. That, that's a given. But I want to see an economy that raises the prosperity level. And, and that means a better quality community. Not a better quantity community, but a better quality community. And whether that's with jobs, whether you bring the arts into it, whether you bring the aesthetics into this so that we look better. You know, most people uh, up north see us from I-25. That's right. not the most attractive no. version of no. going through Pueblo to see. Not Is there close. a way that we can enhance that so we look you know, Pueblo was once known as being the park city of the state. Is there a way to bring that garden atmosphere and, and aesthetic back? Um, you know, and arts are, are part of that. And it, 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 it has to be a holistic, comprehensive view of who we are and where we're going with all of us trying to to bring the prosperity level up so we can do so much more. Pueblo is known for doing things by its bootstraps. Mm-hmm. And we particularly have since uh, the demise of the, of the old steel mill. Um, and there's got to be a way to, to take that energy, to take that grittiness and to put it into effect, take our history. Uh, you know, uh, we're the real Colorado. We're the real deal where we're, where, you know, you had natives people and you had Hispanics here. You had the cattle drives here. You had the railroads here. Mm -hmm. It, it, you know, you, it, it is the best of Colorado here. And somehow we need to be able to put that together and market it. Uh, to the betterment of all the people here. And I think it can be done. And I have great faith, you know, and, and that's why I came home and, and worked on city council and worked as a county commissioner and I worked as DA. Those are all separate pieces of the pie. Right. But there's got to be a way to put it all together. And, you know, uh, that that's what I want to do with the remaining time that God's given me. I want to be able to do what's right by my community because so much of the success I had in life, came from here whether it was families the school system uh, that I went through uh, the sports that I went through uh, the friends that I made uh, the girls I dated you know the whole <laughs> <band>. <laughs> you, that's what yeah, that's I mean, what that's makes. what makes who you are and I want to give back to this community yeah. one last little thing you may have seen uh, in the paper earlier this week as a as a example of that they're doing bra- uh, groundbreaking breaking for an expansion of Ben Franklin elementary school mm-hmm. oh yeah I was called back as one community member to have a shovel and dig because I'm a graduate of uh, Mm -hmm. of Franklin Elementary I could even remember the school song and sing it to the kids so (laughs) that's how much of a Pueblo geek I am of
1: course (laughs) you could
2: but that's that's uh, not to get off track and I know I'm being long winded here Sarah and 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 Brian but uh, I love this community Mm -hmm. I came back to try to do better with it I haven't always succeeded I fail like like a lot of people Mm But hopefully my batting average has been good. Uh, and hopefully people know that I love the place and I'm, I'm trying every day to make it better.
1: Well, Brian and I are fans of yours and the work you do. So thanks for being. Thanks for sipping in some time with us. We've been wanting to do this for a while. My pleasure. I appreciate it. I know you have a lot on your plate and a lot that you're doing, but thanks. We appreciate um, you mm-hmm. doing all of that. Anything else?
0: Yeah. um, For any questions, comments, or concerns, please email us at show at action22.org. And if you're not a member of Action 22, you need to be a member. We have a housing summit coming up April 29th. taken off to a whole new level than we thought it would. It's going to be huge. Yeah. Um, Any questions about that, you can email us and visit our webpage, action22.org. We have all of our membership info, or again, you could just email us and we'll get that to you.
1: All right. Um, Thanks for being with us and we will be um, back with you next week. We have a couple of people who um, want to be on the show, so we don't know who that's going to be yet, but we'll be back. So thanks to Jeff and thanks, Brian.
0: Thank you. We'll see you next time. Bye. Thank you for tuning in to Making Action Happen. Be sure to join your hosts, Sarah Blackhurst and Brian McCain, for another edition of the show next Thursday at 1 p.m. Mountain Time, 12 noon Pacific Time, and 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.